Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Gentlemen, thank you for uh, joining us today. We have got a uh, hot topic to talk about that uh, no doubt is going to be without a, uh, or with a, a multitude of different opinions, not only among us, but also among the people in this room and the people that are listening in uh, online. And uh, the, the issue that sparked all of this and why this discussion has come back up is a tragedy that occurred on uh, June 17th of this year in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, where a young man by the name of Dylan Roof uh, walked into Emanuel AME Church, uh, spent time with them, didn't just walk in and start shooting, but spent time with them, and then opened fire on them, killing nine of our brothers and sisters in Christ that day. Uh, the dangers, I think, that we have here is it's easy to remember his name, uh, but we forget the other victims' names, that are those the victims that were, uh, that were murdered uh, on that day. Just so that we don't forget them, that's Cynthia Hurd, Susie Jackson, Ethel Lance, DePayne Middleton Doctor, Clementa Pinckney, Tawanza Sander, Daniel Simmons, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, and Myra Thompson. And uh, soon after this particular event, uh, when it was clear that this had become a hate crime, uh, a picture showed up of Dylan Roof with uh, uh, weaponry and holding the, uh, uh, the Confederate flag at that point in time. And just from a clarity standpoint, when we talk about this, I know that some people might be particular on the details regarding this. Uh, this particular flag that we're talking about is, uh, is not the flag that was the official flag of the Confederate States of, of America. Uh, this was a variation of many of the battle flags that the states used and then was later incorporated uh, into some of the public display items that we have been talking about. Uh, and because of that then, we got in this situation that sparked the debate again about the Confederate flag specifically at the state capitol in South Carolina. But as we get started here, Curtis, I'd love for you to help us uh, in this predominantly Caucasian setting uh, just a little bit about the thoughts and emotions when it was clear that what had happened wasn't just uh, an unfortunate incident but was actually a, murders that were accomplished through this, this hate crime. They were murdered simply for the color of their skin. Thanks, Hutch. Well, first of all, I think if you have discussions with African Americans about the history of slavery, uh, you'll notice something that when we talk about slavery, uh, we typically use inclusive pronouns. We say we, you enslaved us or something along those lines because there's always an attachment to the fact that the dehumanization that African Americans experience from 1619 to 1865, still lives within our hearts. And so when, uh, when we discovered that this was a hate crime, that nine African-American brothers and sisters in Christ were slaughtered, murdered, literally martyred uh, for, for simply worshiping the Lord and being together around Scripture, uh, it created pain. And, and in one sense, I, I almost want to say that it created so much pain and angst that many African-Americans, and I'll speak specifically for my church, uh, we 
not only mourned the situation, but we actually wondered what would happen if this occurred within Watson Memorial Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky? What if someone came into our church and because they hated us based upon the color of our skin, gunned us down? How can we prepare for that? Mm -hmm. So the, the key um, issue that, that, that we face is that that pain of the dehumanization that African peoples experienced in the history of America is still with us and is always with us. And whenever we see something like that, it creates a reaction. Sure, yeah. sure. Uh, just to ask all the, all the, the panelists that are here, uh, your particular position on uh, the flag coming down from the South Carolina State Capitol grounds. It had already been removed uh, sometime earlier from the top of the Capitol and had been removed out to the front of the Capitol. Um, but uh, Curtis, particular position on in favor or against it coming down? Oh, in favor. I was celebrating just celebrating the fact that it came down. All right. The same, and I'm embarrassed it was ever up to begin with. Okay. I would be happy to never see it again, except uh, in a museum. And, and that's a good question when it comes to, is there a proper place for it in that kind of a setting, from like a museum setting, in a sense of understanding who we are and who our country is? Would we say it's not a banishment in its entirety, but it's where it properly belongs, and that's in a museum, not, in a, mm -hmm. not on public display, at a, especially at a, at a Capitol building or, or things along those lines. Well, I would not want it to be banished permanently because we would lose the memory of it. So its location in a museum where we are reminded of what it stood for, uh, the oppression of a people simply because of the color of their skin. And we can get into the whole thing in a minute about it representing courage and bravery and, and all of that. But uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, as someone that grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, from the Deep South, the whole heritage and everything, when, when I see it, uh, I don't think initially and first, uh, Ryan, of pride uh, in, in people that were brave and courageous, I see it and I think slavery. I see it and I think a people simply because of their color of their skin, oppressed, raped, lynched, families torn apart. Uh, that's what has always, always come to my mind initially and therefore I don't want us to lose the memory of that in the sense that uh, by God's grace may we never ever walk that path again with any people. So. As we started off with the title of this conversation and tying into what you just said, Dr. Aiken, about this sense of heritage or hate that associates with it, you know, Curtis, when we were talking the other day, you, you, you made a, a, a kind of a very powerful statement mm -hmm. about those two words together. If you want to share that to, just with the rest of us and, and, uh, and how it is that from, you see this from an African-American perspective. Yeah, one person's heritage is another person's hell. And and what I mean by that is that when we begin to look at history, um, there, there are principles of evidence that we have to employ in order to do good history. We, have to, we, we must not allow individuals simply based upon an idea that because this is, uh, I have a sympathetic understanding towards my grandparents or my great-grandparents, that this flag or this situation is good and, and, and perfect and beautiful when we know that within the statement of that symbol is African dehumanization. And so when an African-American sees that flag, an African-American sees that flag in the same way a Jew, I would argue, sees a swastika, I would argue that it is commensurate with that. 
So in this whole discussion about, and sometimes what happens with the heritage and the hate discussion is that uh, in the 20th century and into the 21st century, uh, that this has been co-opted by uh, people who are using it for a different purpose than what it was originally designed, uh, that it had a more noble purpose that was associated with it. Uh, I, wanna I want us to listen to a quote from Ale Alexander Stevens, who is the uh, Vice President of the Confederate States of America. Uh, and this is what comes from what has become known as the cornerstone speech. And he goes through a litany of different things before he gets to this particular section, talking about the benefits of this new form of government that the Confederate States of America is going to do. And he closes out after kind of a bunch of different organizational items. He gets to this particular topic where he says this, but not to be tedious in enumerating the numerous changes for the better, allow me to allude to one other, though last, not least. The new Constitution has put to rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institutions, African slavery as it exists among us, the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture in present revolution. And he refers to those who formed the U.S. Constitution. He says that they rested upon the assumption of the equality of races. This was an error. It was a sandy foundation, and the government built upon it fell when the storm came and the wind blew. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. I, I hear that quote, and I, it's just a crushing, crushing quote. When I think about my brothers and sisters in Christ of, of a different race created in God's image. And Brent, let me throw this question to you from the history side of things. Was, was this just one bloviating politician who was speaking out of turn uh, and that this wasn't a representation of the leadership during that day, or was this a kind of a common understanding uh, of the leadership among the Confederate States of America? Well, first of all, it, it speaks volumes that he became the vice president of the uh, Confederacy. Uh, another thing to keep in mind with Stevens in particular is that uh, he wasn't a crank or a radical. Um, he actually counseled against secession initially and urged his fellow Southerners to wait and see what the Lincoln administration would do once it was in power. So he wasn't even a, a radical fire eater, as they call him. Uh, and so I think it's an accurate indication, not only of what he was thinking was the cornerstone of the Confederate government, but of what most leaders throughout the South uh, believed they were doing when they were seceding from the Union, that that was undergirding it all, uh, the uh, perpetuation of slavery and white supremacy. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in, in fairness in this situation, uh, there's a tendency to think, look back on the Civil War and think that uh, all the people in the South were the people with black hats and all the people in the, in the North were the people with white hats. Was it that clean? No, certainly not. Um, the war didn't start off over slavery. And, and those who would tend to defend uh, 
using the Confederate flag as a symbol will oftentimes say that, and that's in that sense, they tend to be correct. Uh, Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party, was a de they were not determined to end slavery initially. The war was to maintain uh, the Union. And uh, you know, there's a lot that can be said about Lincoln and the Republican Party. Lincoln, for instance, had no desire to give African Americans the right to vote or just basic civil rights upon being emancipated. Uh, he had a low view of African Americans. Uh, there were lynchings, there was discrimination throughout the North. So uh, the North uh, wasn't you know, necessarily the pure and good and right and in the, in the South representing all evil. Um, it was racism spread throughout America. It's just that the institution of slavery had taken root in the South and was still there uh, when you get to the 1860s. Matter of fact, even uh, George McClellan, who was the uh, general in charge of the Army of the Potomac, uh, uh, right before the Emancipation Proclamation was issued during that time, so he was the most prominent general during that time in the Union Army. Uh, and when the Emancipation Proclamation was issued by Lincoln, he called it a cursed doctrine. Um, and this is the lead general for the Union Army, and this just kind of shows how things weren't quite cut as clean as we might think that they were uh, during the states during that day. So, Brent, tell us a little bit about the, the rise of the use of the Confederate battle flag in the 20th century and kind of the events that are associated with it. Okay. Well, I'll actually go back a little bit. Um, immediately after the Civil War, you did not see much public display of the of Confederate flags, and there were a variety of them, as you pointed out earlier. And part of the reason for that is leaders like uh, Robert E. Lee even advised against uh, such displays, urging instead uh, reconciliation. Don't do anything to, to alienate uh, our northern brothers. Do everything to encourage uh, kind of a, a unified Americanism. But starting in the 1890s, two states, Mississippi and then Alabama, changed their state flags to incorporate Confederate symbolism. The Alabama flag was just the St. Andrew's Cross, which the Confederate battle flag's based on. Uh, Mississippi, they put the, you know, that battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia, the Southern Cross, uh, in that upper left-hand corner. And they, in the 1890s, the reason they did that is because that, that was the decade of pushing white supremacy, of, uh, of preventing blacks from being able to vote. Uh, it was the highest decade of lynchings. Of, uh, and there's, there's a reason for those states adopting those symbols at that time. And then more in our time, the 20th century, of course, when the civil rights movement began to uh, emerge, particularly even, even before that, in the 1940s, when, uh, for instance, Harry Truman called for the Democratic Party to put a civil rights plank in its platform, that is when Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina started what's called the Dixiecrat Revolution, or rebellion. And that was a rebellion against civil rights, and they adopted as their emblem what we call the Confederate flag. And then uh, in the 1950s, Georgia adopts the flag, the, puts, that, puts the Confederate emblem in their flag, and it's clear that's being done to demonstrate opposition to the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And it, it speaks volumes when you look at photographs of certain civil rights events and you see peaceful black demonstrators 
uh, carrying American flags, and then you see these whites waving Confederate flags with these angry faces. Uh, you see the, the symbolism uh, behind those flags. Um, senator Long, who was a, a senator from South Carolina, uh, around the times that the, uh, the flag was raised, the Confederate flag was raised on top of the South Carolina uh, state capitol, <clears throat> made this quote in an event. He said that Reconstruction had been more insidious than war and equally evil in consequences until the prostrate South staggered to her knees, assisted by the original Ku Klux Klan and the red shirts who redeemed the South and restored her to her own. Um, Curtis, reaction. Reconstruction, W.B. Du Bois defined Reconstruction as the golden ear for African Americans in his work, The Souls of Black Folk. And, and that's how I tend to think about Reconstruction. It was actually trying to create a balance within the American political economy for African peoples. So with the imagery of the Ku Klux Klan, this terror organization, um, helping the South to rise up from its shambles, uh, that's, that's, that's the image of insurrection to me. And there's nothing within that imagery that would make me as an African-American uh, historian as an African-American citizen think that there will be anything good attached to those who would fly uh, a Confederate battle flag as well as adorn a white hood in order to subjugate African people. So my reaction to that is one of, 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 of deep-seated sorrow that a person could think that that would be good for just American citizenry. Dr. Aiken, just in, in tying into your comments earlier, being from Georgia uh, and kind of that fuller background that it's there, you know, one of the things that uh, in the state of Georgia itself, when they dealt with changing the state flag uh, around 2004, an uh, interesting survey was done of uh, some citizens in Georgia where they asked three simple questions about the uh, Civil War, knowledge of the Civil War, and they were very basic questions, not detailed questions. Uh, one of them being uh, as simple as uh, William Tecumseh Sherman, was he a general for the Union or for the Confederacy? Uh, which most people that would know anything about the Confederacy would be able to answer. And what they found uh, is that those that were opposed to changing the flag in Georgia during that particular time, that if they got all three of those answers wrong, 74% of them were in favor of keeping the Confederate flag as a part of the Georgia state flag. Uh, if it got down to the person got all three questions right about the history of the Civil War, just basic facts, it dropped to only 34% or about 35% were in favor of doing that. So, uh, Dr. Hagan, what does that speak to you as you think about it, not only being from Georgia, uh, but just in sense of... Uh, how it is that we have to really completely understand history to make the right kind of decisions in these, these matters. Well, the first thing it does is it confirms my opinion of Senator Long, and that is he was an idiot. <laughs> and uh, we can extrapolate from there, but on the most basic fundamental level, he was an idiot. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was blinded by his arrogance and by his bigotry and by his prejudice. And the fact of the matter is, I'm absolutely convinced that uh, ignorance drives much of the uh, popularity uh, and advocacy for those who uh, want to retain in some measure the Confederate flag. Mm -hmm. 
It's an ignorance of history. It's an ignorance of the pain and the sorrow and the suffering and the evil and the wickedness that uh, this flag represents. Now, let me say this, and you, you put the question in this context. I did grow up in Atlanta, Georgia. I played football in high school in Terra Stadium, which if you know the epic film movie, Gone with the Wind, their plantation was Terra Plantation, which was in the myth of it located in the Atlanta area. Uh, As a boy, I took great delight in going to Stone Mountain and seeing on the side the uh, majestic carving uh, with Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and, and Jefferson Davis. Is there a sense in which I can be um, proud of exhibitions of bravery and courage uh, in any soldier, including soldiers from the South? Yes. Can I be proud of what they were fighting for? No, absolutely not. How can I be proud of a war effort that had as its goal the continuation of oppression of a race of people simply because of the color of their skin. So I can have pride in certain aspects of my Southern heritage and take great joy and delight in that, but I don't baptize the whole thing as something noble and wonderful because it wasn't, wasn't even close. And again, it's foolishness for anyone to try to argue that. I'm I just amazed. I, I've yet, Ryan, to be honest with you, I've yet to hear a logical, coherent, persuasive argument for retaining the uh, Confederate battle flag. I've just never heard it. Now, that may say something about me. Good. I'll accept that. <laughs> so, as conservative evangelical Christians, we are operating off of a set of principles outside of simply certain philosophies or political ideologies that exist that the rest of secular society out there is having regarding this flag. And so the Bible is our guide. It is our all-sufficient source to uh, um, instruct us on both doctrine and practice in our daily walk. Uh, so, Dr. Egg, let me open up with you, and then we can uh, go around and, and uh, for some input here. How do we look at what Scripture teaches us that, uh, on, that should properly inform us on this particular topic? Well, there are several ways we could get at this, but I'll just put one out there for us to consider, or at least what is fundamental for me. Uh, my love for my neighbor always regulates my liberty. And I am more than happy to surrender my liberties for the sake of love of my brother, which for me includes both believers and non-believers. So the question then becomes, how successful am I going to be in pulling up into the driveway of an African-American family to share the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ with the Confederate battle flag in the back of my, I don't have a pickup truck, I don't want one either, but if I had a pickup truck and I had the Confederate flag there, I think probably I'm not going to make very much progress in sharing the gospel with them because this is ultimately for me rooted in the gospel. And anything that is going to harm the gospel, that is going to keep people from hearing the gospel, that is going to somehow misrepresent the gospel. And again, if the gospel teaches anything, it is that our God, as, as, as uh, 
Peter said in Acts 10, he is no respecter of persons. And therefore, I'm going to go to the nth degree to ensure that takes place so that the cause of Christ is not harmed or wounded. So for me as a Christian, this really is a no-brainer. I, I can understand why a non-Christian steeped in the heritage of the South might want to retain something like this. I don't agree with them, but I do understand it. I don't understand it for a Christian who wants to make sure that the gospel of Christ goes forward unheeded and without any type of uh, attachments that would weigh it down. And, and from a real-life missional perspective, uh, early on when I moved here uh, was with a guy that was an alum of this institution. Uh, his name's Brian Tillman, and he's from the state of Mississippi, and we were actually uh, visiting with a family in public housing in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, that's where our church is located. And uh, we went in and just having kind of that small talk of trying to get into a gospel conversation. And uh, they were asking us where we were from, and I said Florida, and he said Mississippi. And the immediate response from the man in the house as he looked at us pretty serious and said, Mississippi, isn't that where they used to hang black people? Hmm. And it was, I mean, it was this immediate like, oh no. And I, I was like, ah, he's the one from Mississippi. <laughs> 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 But but it does. I mean, it has a significant. I mean, this is a hurdle when we have uh, when we have those vain philosophies and things that we have to overcome to be able to actually get to the truth of the gospel. From a missional perspective, this is one of the things that we face that's there. And so, Curtis, uh, you know, again, thinking about that kind of the missional aspect and then also how the Bible informs us. How how do you how do you add to what Dr. Aikens? Yeah, I think uh, you know to borrow from uh, your former uh, professor Nathan Finn, he uses the the, the, the verbiage. We don't claim him anymore. Uh, yeah, right? well, <laughs> I still love Nathan. He's the name to <laughs> His name was Finn. No. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he uses the, uh, the, the, the verbiage neighbor love, and it goes back to what he's saying. It's, that it's the covenant loyalty that we experience from God and the covenant loyalty that we have towards one another. And if I have loyalty uh, to my brother and my sister in Christ, I'm willing to give up my rights in order for my brother and sister in Christ to see the right representation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Because the goal is restoration. You know, we can't simply say creation, fall, redemption, and restoration and be excited because we understand what a biblical worldview means on, on paper. But we have to live out that worldview so that we are characterized by convictional kindness, to borrow from Russ Moore. People need to know that my desire is to season my words with salt so that I might be able to win even my adversary to Christ. So if I'm engaging the person who, who wants to wave the flag, I want to I enter into dialogue with them because, you know, an honest question deserves an honest answer. And I want to give them an answer and help, help to understand why they have so much affinity or love towards the flag and, and their understanding of heritage, but then also give them a biblical uh, response so that they might see that their very desire to, to hold on to this object is actually killing restoration between blacks and whites in American culture and within the Lord's church. I think too many times from a missional perspective, from a, a gospel proclamation perspective, uh, we forget that in the gospel that Christ is the stumbling block, but too many times we are the yes. stumbling block. That's good. Uh, it doesn't even, they can't even get to Christ because they can't get past us That's right. over that. For anything you'd like to add to that? Just, we go to great lengths to, um, to just make a connection with people, to at least get a hearing from them. We send missionaries out and 
applaud them and, and teach them contextualization, applaud when they adopt certain aspects of the culture that they're in. Uh, here at home, we, you know, we design our churches and think about our services to make it so that everyone who might walk through that door would feel welcome. And so we, we go to these lengths to give ourselves, a, make it so that we get a hearing. I don't understand how a Christian could then display a, a Confederate flag knowing that African Americans will see that and be be repulsed by it. You're doing just the opposite of what we do in every other arena, and that is trying to, uh, trying to appeal to a person rather than repulse them. Ron, I was in a uh, <clears throat> preaching conference just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I was the lone uh, Caucasian white uh, presenter. All the others were African Americans. About 150 people there, and I think there were maybe five or six uh, white folks among the crowd. Let me say, first of all, I was wonderfully loved and welcomed and at home and comfortable and treated with the greatest of kindness and respect. But during one of the presentations, this issue of what happened in Charleston came up and the Confederate flag came up. And I just want to tell you, it was very uh, edifying and instructive for me to sit in that uh, congregation, that gathering of brothers and sisters, because I sensed when the subject came up, um, not anger, but hurt and pain and sorrow. And uh, I think many of us, uh, maybe in this room, some that as believers, you yeah, well, know, I'm not tracking with you, Danny. I'm not tracking where you guys are going. Boy, it would be very edifying for you to be in a context like that to sense the feeling and the passion that they have over this issue. And for me, it was just a confirmation that this is just something that for a believer, uh, not only do I willingly, I gladly set this thing aside out of love for them and for the gospel. But just I want to love well my brothers and sisters in Christ regardless of their nationality or ethnicity. And when I sensed the hurt and pain that was in that room at that moment, it was just confirming to me, this is, I'm grateful that we are tracking finally uh, in this direction. And, and let me say, I, I, mean, I talked to you about this the other day. Uh, I didn't walk with God as a teenager, to my shame. I was converted at 10. I really got my act together when I was 19. I, God got my act together. But during those years, I have to say, though, I still had great pride in being a, a boy from the South and being from Atlanta and, and all that goes with that. I never had a, uh, a peace in my heart about the Confederate flag. And it was part of the Georgia state flag. And I would see it. And in, in just in my soul, maybe it was the Holy Spirit still working in spite of my rebelliousness, that this is, just isn't helpful. This, this isn't really what ought to be flying up there if indeed we're going to extend our uh, welcoming to all persons regardless of their racial or, or ethnic status. I just felt that way even as a teenager, didn't walk with God. Now as someone that's trying to pursue Christ's likeness, it's just a settled reality in my soul. I think uh, this is a shameless plug for our Kingdom Diversity podcast mm -hmm. uh, that's out there. But recently, uh, there was a post that uh, where Walter Strickland interviewed Derwin Gray, and uh, he talked. Derwin uh, talked about the importance, not just from a, a cross-cultural context, um, but he used an example of even his personal life in the cross-cultural context of the importance in these situations to learn the other people's stories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and until you learn their stories, you can't properly engage them and get to a common understanding, right. because if not, you're just going to constantly be talking past each other this topic. Well, let's move on to some practical matters uh, with this. And so we know that there were believers in the South that struggled with the topic of slavery. Again, this wasn't a, a very clean topic. Matter of fact, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson themselves were, were conflicted over this topic uh, of slavery themselves. And here are two of the lead generals uh, for, the, for the Confederate Army. Um, so this raises the issue then of how we handle these kind of believers when they are wrong on a major issue like this. And so uh, before getting with how to deal with them about how to, uh, how to handle them when they're wrong on a major issue, what are, what are just some practical examples, whether it be within the topic of, of the Confederate flag and the Confederacy and the Civil War, or even broader in church history, examples of where we have to deal with the fact that somebody that is a significant leader or somebody that we look to for significant matters regarding our faith was, was, had a huge blind spot uh, in their life on, uh, on particular matters. What are, what are some examples that are out there of those? I think it goes back to simply speaking the truth and love about individuals from a past. There, there are things that, that I love about uh, Martin Luther King Jr. You, you go in my office at the Kentucky Baptist Convention, you'll see a picture um, of Dr. King. But there, there are other things that, that, that I question concern his understanding of the atonement. Um, I, I don't think it's consistent with, with biblical theology. And, and even though I honor him as a civil rights leader, I, I'm still going to speak the truth about his understanding of the atonement. Um, uh, when, when we get to a point where we're afraid to speak the truth about our heroes from the past, then I think we have taken our Bible and now our Bible's being subjugated to our desire to honor uh, heritage, whatever that means. And typically what it means is, it means whatever makes me feel good. Because history is not designed to make you feel good. History is designed to get to the heart and the truth of the matter. And when it comes to African-American history or African-American intellectual history, it's important to, yes, know our story. And that means listening to the voices of these African diasporic intellectuals who were speaking using their own voices. It's important to hear Phyllis Wheatley speak as an African woman in the 18th century. It's important to know how Frederick Douglass felt about this so-called peculiar institution. Because Douglass makes a statement in um, an essay that he writes, what is the 4th of July to the slave? He says, every man knows that slavery is not good for him. <laughs> you know, and so the debate about slavery is when you, when you actually see another person or people group as other. And as long as we're seeing individuals as other and we're not looking at them in terms of the imago Dei, the image of God that they bear and the dignity that they dignity, dignity that they bear, then we're always um, going to lean into whatever our own personal desires are, I think. Ron, I would say this. Take the classic uh, example here for me is uh, the great reformer, Martin Luther. Luther laid the foundation for the Reformation and helped us recover salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and yet he was a rabid anti-Semite. 
he wrote some things about the Jews that would just curl anyone's hair. Well, maybe not yours because you don't have any. But uh, <laughs> if you did, it would curl your hair and You're my hair. I, yeah, I've not got much more to say there either. So um, better uh, might not want to use that yeah, analogy. Right there's only one here, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's only one up here. Yeah, curl Brit's hair. But, but, but so, so as a result of the fact that Luther had this horrible, I mean, and I mean horrible, blind spot in this area, do we just then jettison all that he wrote and all that he said and all that he did? Well, here's the deal. If we're going to jettison persons for their blind spots and their sins, then we'll have no one to read. That's right. There's nobody left because we're all sinners. We all have areas that need the redeeming work of God in our lives. So I think what we want to do is, as Curtis Will said, we look at them as, as fairly and objectively uh, and holistically as we can, we praise God and rejoice in the good things that we see in these persons. In, in our context, the founders theologically of Southern Seminary, which is our mother seminary, brought us Boyce, Manley, and Williams. And we thank God for the really good things that we find in these men. At the same time, we don't whitewash them and give them a pass and say, well, everything they did was good because everything they did was not good. And so we need to be honest and acknowledge as well their, their phobias, their shortcomings, and their flaws, which then again, then I turn it back on me and say, all right, Danny Aiken, uh, be careful lest you likewise fall because you are just as prone to not seeing things accurately and correctly as these men who are, I think, far greater than I will ever be in terms of what they have done for the cause of Christ and what they've given the church. Sure. Every, every Christian, American Christian, should look at themselves and then look at a Jonathan Edwards, just an intellectual giant, and say if someone like Edwards could have a blind spot with regard to slavery, then what is my blind spot? Maybe I should assume I have something. I should search my life, my thoughts uh, against Scripture. Mm-hmm. and find those blind spots. Spanish-born philosopher George Santayana uh, made, a, uh, I think, a very helpful quote in this uh, situation. He says that loyalty to our ancestors does not include loyalty to their mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and to kind of separate those two issues that are there. And I think it's also important, I think sometimes we can get caught on, one, on another air on that, that every time we mention them, we feel the need to mention their mistake. I think in the context of if you're dealing with that particular topic, it makes sense. But would you all agree that that doesn't mean every time Martin Luther King comes exactly. up, we have to bring up an issue with the atonement or marriage issues exactly. or things along those lines. But those are things that uh, in that context we do mm-hmm. bring up and we don't shy away from. Just like Scripture itself doesn't shy away from the shortcomings no. of our heroes of the faith that are found within the pages of the Bible. Yeah. They're there. So one of the topics that's still going on right now, uh, the flag has come down off of the Capitol grounds, uh, flying off the Capitol grounds in South Carolina. Uh, The Mississippi state flag still includes a portion of the Confederate flag. And then there's another debate that has been sparked regarding all kinds of Confederate monuments uh, all throughout the South. Um, How do we continue to engage this topic? And I think that we'd all be on the same page that we think Mississippi should change their state flag, just like Georgia did um, and other states have done over the years. But specifically, let's talk about the monuments topic. What about all these monuments? You mentioned Stone Mountain. Uh, There's been the big debate in Memphis uh, where uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest uh, is buried and a big monument that's there. What, What do we do with those? 
I would say, first of all, that this is a um, area that is a bit more muddy than, say, the state flag flying over Capitol that, in essence, is um, representative of the totality of that population of that state. So I think there is a difference there. Um, I'm still trying, to be honest with you, Ron, to think my way uh, through this, that there are some places where I think some monuments probably ought to come down. There are other places where I could see an argument being made that they remain for historical purposes and historical memory, uh, and uh, also as a chance to educate and teach. Uh, we talked about this on the phone the other day, and I'll let Curtis add to it. Okay, uh, here's a monument to a Confederate soldier that uh, reminds many people of bravery and courage and so on. What if we were to set another monument beside it of a black man that represents his courage, his bravery, and perhaps even his courage and bravery unto death? Mm-hmm. Let's take Stone Mountain. I would not be in favor. I would not be in favor of them going up and wiping out that monument that's been there for ages to Lee and Jackson and Jefferson. I, I wouldn't. Would I be in favor of a comparable companion monument going up, it would take a long time to do it, that's okay, that represented wonderful leaders within um, uh, the black race uh, of a king, a uh, uh, Booker T. Washington. I could think of several. Yeah, why not? Why not have both up there as a reminder of both good and bad in both blacks and whites? I, I could see value in that and would be supportive of that. But again, this, this is something that's going to be a little bit more... Uh, difficult to navigate, the fact that we're at least having the question is a good thing. First, what would you add to that? It's a uh, recent, I think it was in the Kentucky Journal, um, your very own Gerald Smith, historian at the University of Kentucky. I think he's actually doing an MDiv here, if I'm not mistaken. He spoke here last year. Did he? Okay. Well, well, Gerald, Gerald has an interesting article, and it's called Blacks Not in the Club. And what he's writing on is he's, he's, he's discussing the fact that it, within the Kentucky Rotunda, um, of course, you have these, these statuaries to Jefferson Davis and others, but there are no representations of African-Americans within Kentucky history within the Rotunda. And his point was the reason why is because when the individuals who were deciding who would represent history were coming together, well, they were all Anglo males. So the question now, if we're going to have this redemptive element or this redemptive hermeneutic, we need to revisit Stone Mountain. We need to revisit the Rotunda and invite African-American voices in as well, female voices in as well, to speak towards a holistic view of history. And, And I don't have a problem with a redemptive element. I don't have a problem with individuals who might have strong affinities towards Jefferson Davis. Heck, I'll be honest with you. I have actually read volume one of, of the rise and the fall of the Confederate government. No, no, don't, don't kill me, folks. But, but, I mean, he, he was a lucid thinker. But when it comes to the principle of the ontological inferiority of African peoples, he was an idiot. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> he was, you know? And, 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 that's what, um, and that's what I would say, you know? But, okay. but that's my thoughts. All right, so... Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> Isn't some good, old boy. Well, you know, there was something very, very disturbing that I learned about our president um, 
uh, Dr. Aiken the other day, and that he has never seen an episode of the Dukes of Hazard. And I'm clearly the better for it. <laughs> I, I, I think they're going to revoke your birth certificate from the state of Georgia. <laughs> Anyways. So another controversy has been the Dukes of Hazard, and uh, should it still uh, you know, remain on TV? There was no government decision to do that. It was simply a TV network's decision that they weren't going to show it. There's no ban against it being shown on, on you know, any other TV network along those lines. And so maybe it's stirred up a little bit more. But, you know, what do we think about something like the Dukes of Hazard on TV? Curtis? Well, I'll be honest to you. When I was a kid, I used to watch the Dukes of Hazard. I did. I don't watch it now, since now I actually know who General Lee was. <laughs> and what that flag represented. I was running around looking like an idiot because I didn't know his <laughs> But, but yeah, I watched it, and uh, uh, I, I will say that I, I know pe there are individuals who probably still love the, the, those good old boys. You know, they don't mean any harm. Uh, <laughs> they've been in tr trouble with the law since the day they were born, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that is a statement concerning what the Dukes of Hazzard actually represented. Individuals who were consistently in trouble with the law. So is this a film that I want to promote, promote and support as a Christian? People who don't have honor as it relates to integrity and, and, and being law-abiding citizens. That's just one side of the coin. The other side of the coin for me is that because now I know who General Lee is, now I know what that flag represents, it just goes against reason as an African-American male for me to support that particular show. And I, and I, I don't have a problem with them taking it off. So, so Brent, since Dr. Aiken can't really fully speak to this topic, not having speak seen all. any episodes mm -hmm. of it, what would you add to that conversation? Did you watch it I'll growing up? A, yeah, I'll take the easy way out and say I, I support taking the Dukes of Hazard off of TV, but because Daisy Duke didn't wear enough clothes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 that's good. Yeah. And we move on. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, as I said earlier, I'd be happy to see all symbolism of the Confederacy just gone, never see it again in any context other than in a museum or historical context. So I'm, I'm fine with it being taken off TV. Dr. Reagan, as we close, there's kind of two primary questions I want to hit here, and I want to kick the first one out to you, is that uh, Doug, William, Doug Wilson, who's rarely without an opinion, uh, has uh, his particular opinion on this matter is that if we're going to take the Confederate, and I'm paraphrasing him, uh, if we're going to take the Confederate flag down, then we should also take down the American flag because it represents a nation that has uh, committed this atrocity of murdering millions of babies. Um, what, what, how, how would you differentiate this issue between displaying the American flag and the Confederate flag? Well, I'm going to try to be kind in my response. Uh, when Doug Wilson is right, he's really good. And when he's wrong, he's really bad. And in this instance, I think he's really bad. Because when you look at the Confederate flag, one of the first reactions any, I think, reflective person will have is slavery. Yeah. You, that just comes to your mind. 
When I look at the American flag, the first thing that pops into my mind is not the Holocaust, and it is a Holocaust, of abortion. It is not the first thing that comes to my mind. I think of much different type of things than that. So I think his argument is flawed, and I think that it uh, doesn't carry the day. So uh, I don't agree with that at all. I think the American flag, though it symbolizes certain phobials of our nation, it does symbolize across the board. I don't think an African-American looks at the American flag and thinks slavery like they do when they look at the Confederate battle flag. And I know that many different races long to come and be a part of what is taking place in America because they, they think, I see that flag, they think freedom, opportunity, equality, liberty, which again, are we a flawed nation? Absolutely. In my opinion, are we still the best nation in the world? Absolutely. So as we close out here, we're going to be in situations where uh, we have people in our churches who have very different opinions. There might even be students here that have very different opinions in this situation. And even in an African-American context in the way that interacting with whites on this particular matter, how, how do we, from a pastoral perspective, how do we help shepherd our people through this topic? I had the privilege of helping to plant a church in Lexington Kentucky called Mosaic Lexington. It's an intentional multi-ethnic church. And uh, one of the teaching pastors, Jimmy Carter, who is uh, an Anglo male from Georgia, and his name is Jimmy Carter, yes. <laughs> Jimmy recently sent me a text because we were discussing this, um, this opportunity that the Lord has given me. And one of the things that he brought out in the text was that he actually grew up flying the Confederate battle flag from his boat with his parents. And he said, and his mom is from Mississippi, his dad's from Eastern Kentucky. He said that that flag reminds him of, of warm peanuts. It reminds him of, of boat rides with his family. It reminds him of fellowship. He says, but he also knows that that same flag reminds him of the African-Americans who are part of our community of faith who experience pain when they see it. And because of that, his memory of his family has to take a back seat to his understanding of how he would adorn that flag. And I think that's, that's really what we do. We, we, we do not allow African-Americans to feel like they have to speak monolithically for the entire race of, of black people. I'm speaking uh, for Curtis. I'm not speaking for all African-Americans. I, I would hope that some of my, my sensibilities are consistent with what most African-Americans would think. But one responsibility that I think that we have pastorally is to make sure that we listen to individual voices within the African-American community and never force them to feel that they have the weight of every black person on their shoulder as if we all agree on every idea. <laughs> That's a dangerous thing. Dr. Aiken. I'll just say very shortly, um, I believe the gospel leads us to allow love to always regulate and supersede our liberties. Do I have the freedom to fly the Confederate flag? Yes. Does my love for my African-American brother and sister cause me to gladly wrap it up? I don't actually have one, but if I did, wrap it up, stick it in a trunk somewhere and leave it? Yes. And I do so happily and joyfully and glad that I can. Brent, anything that you'd add to that topic? No, I can't. Well, gentlemen, I just want to thank you for the, this discussion. I think it's been instructive. It's been helpful. 
uh, and hopefully this has been something that those that are listening in both here and online uh, have been able to walk away with nuggets of truth that are going to help them shepherd their people and also help them think uh, rightly about this particular topic. And so if you would, let's close in prayer and then uh, we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your graciousness that you showed in our lives. The fact, Lord, that our flesh constantly gets in the way of what you desire from us. Whether white, black, Asian, Hispanic, it doesn't matter. We're constantly dealing with the struggle with our flesh. And Lord, as your scripture instructs us, let us, let us submit ourselves to your spirit so that we would not carry out the desires of the flesh. Lord, when we hear, if we have this particular topic in, in mind and we're very passionate about this from a, a Southern history perspective and somebody brings it up and immediately we feel ourselves start to bristle, uh, Lord, let us submit that to your gospel, yes. um, not just to our philosophies that we might be holding to at this time. Lord, let your gospel and you be the shining light that people are looking towards, uh, be the thing that we're most concerned about. Uh, Lord, give us all wisdom. As we have uh, talked about today, we can go through all throughout history, and every single Christian leader that we can look to, either from the Bible uh, or throughout church history, has glaring areas of mistakes in their lives. And that means that we do as well. And we just sometimes don't know where they are. Lord, allow your spirit and the community of believers to reveal those to us uh, so that we can walk more faithfully um, according to your ways uh, and, uh, and worthy of the gospel unto which you called us to. And we pray this in your mighty, wonderful, and gracious name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.com. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.